0: All right, so since uh, tonight is, is Hanukkah, uh, so even though we finished a, a piece last week about Hanukkah, I figured that uh, before moving on to uh, to another topic, before uh, immersing ourselves in Purim, which is our next uh, major holiday, so we'll go ahead and we'll do one more piece related to, uh, to Hanukkah. Uh, the piece we're going to do tonight, the essay we're going to do tonight, hopefully tonight, may take tonight and uh, next week as well. We'll have to see how it unfolds but it's very significant. The piece that we're doing is from the, the Sefer called Or Gedal Yahu, that's Rav Gedal Shore. And it's significant for um, a couple of pieces. Number one is, is that when they first started putting out uh, Rav Gedal Yashur's um, uh, essays, so they put out this volume, and there's an, an inordinate amount of uh, essays which he has on Hanukkah. So Hanukkah seemed to be a yontif which, uh, which excited him uh, very much. And not only that, but uh, Rav Geda Shore. so he was around in the, the mid part of the, uh, the 20th century, the mid to the latter part of the, the 20th century. And he is one of maybe three names, three gedolim who began to create this bridge between the Litvisha world and the Bali Musar and the Hasidisha world. And the thought of the Maharal and the thought of Reb Tzadok and the thought of, uh, of people of that, uh, of that uh, direction. So he's very significant as far as that, that he began to sort of mainstream that uh, hashkafa rather than just a straight up mussar, the idea of hashkafa and the idea of philosophy uh, and began to uh, make that uh, a more acceptable type of uh, type of thing. With the same time, as you'll see in this piece over here, there's a very heavy emphasis he places on Tamu Torah. So you have to keep in mind that these are all talks which he gave in yeshiva, to, uh, to Bachrim anywhere between 18 and 22, 23, or something like that. And he was trying to give them perspective and trying to uh, guide them in terms of their thought process, in terms of their priorities, in terms of how they should be uh, directing their lives. So obviously it's very different than a drasha, which one gives to people who are already working, already uh, you know older and established. These are people where he was very much shaping their, their thinking process and their attitude towards things. And he was a uh, uh, he was one of the uh, he's, uh, characterized as one of the first American gedolim. So whereas many of the gedolim in the middle part of the 20th century to the latter part towards the latter part of the 20th century, they were all carryovers from Europe. These were all, they were by and large Europeans who had transplanted back in the states. So Gedalia Shore was one of those who was a born and bred American. So that's also something which is significant that uh, that contribution. Okay, so with that introduction in place, so now we will go and begin to, as we've been uh, doing, we'll speak out parts of it outside and other parts we'll, uh, we'll read inside. Um, in this case, it's not necessarily because of the poetic language, I'm not saying he is poetic or he's not poetic like Grafutner, like but just... Sometimes he will be able to say things in a more succinct manner than I would be able to say it, and therefore, uh, you know, in order to make uh, headway in this essay, so uh, we'll we'll read some of it. Okay, so he begins over here. The first part we have to uh, we have to uh, see. So he begins with a medrash, and the medrash over here says, if you look at the beginning, he says, "Isa bamedrash," that. Uh, Amar, uh, uh, Reish, Reish, L'akish Pasach K'ra so Reish Lakish went ahead and he introduced the initial psukim of the Torah as references to the different exiles that the Jewish people would, be, uh, would have to undergo. So if you remember all the way at the beginning of the Torah, it says, So the world was void and it was null and there was darkness on the, on the earth. And each one of those words, Tov, and Choshech. So all of those are understood to refer to different uh, Tkufas, different eras in history, specifically the exiles. And for our purpose, we're going to jump ahead, again, for the sake of time, we say, V'choshech. So when the Pasuk says that there was darkness, Zumachus Yavan. So this refers to the kingdom of the Greeks, Sheikh enem that they went ahead and they darkened, or they dimmed, The eyes of the Jewish people as a result of their decrees. So there's a connection now. There's going to be this conceptual connection between the Greeks and uh, uh, shading our eyes. Shahisa Omarislahed, that the Greeks used to say to the Jews, Kiswalachem al Karen Hashor, we want you to write on the horn of a bull or the horn of a cow or the horn, as we'll see, of a calf that you have no portion with the God of Israel. So this is the darkness. This is what characterizes the darkness that the Greeks sought to impose on us. The fact that we would have to declare and somehow that declaration as it's being made rather than on a billboard on the side of the highway or something like that. So here people would have to write it on the horn of their... Cow, their bull, their calf—that we have no portion with the God of the Jewish people. So that's the darkness of the of the Greeks. Now, what does this mean? So now he says, and we're skipping around again just to uh, to make headway. So the Rev uh, Rev Gedaliah short points out, and this others point out as well, that Shibud Malchias Yavan Hayam Yuchad Bemina. So the exile, what we characterize as the exile of the Greeks was actually unique in terms of Jewish history. One of the fundamental definitions of exile normally is you're not on your land. And yet the whole story, the whole Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were living in Israel. So it's a curious thing to characterize this era as an exile. When the Jews were in Israel, they weren't sent to Bavel. The Greeks didn't come along and displace them and send them off to Greece somewhere. They remained exactly where they were. And not only that, they had a Beis Amikdash during this time. The whole story revolves around the presence of the besamikdash. The Greeks, even when they were um, initially victorious and they were imposing decrees on the Jewish people, they never shut down the besamikdash. They didn't destroy it. They didn't burn it to the ground. They didn't take a... Uh, you know, a wrecking ball, and destroy the structure itself, they left the Beis HaMikdash in, uh, in place. V'haya meyulem o And therefore the Jewish people had access to the light of the Beis HaMikdash during this era, which we characterize as exile. And uh, and it was, so during this era when the Jews are still living in Eretz Yisrael and they still have a Beis HaMikdash, so the Greeks endeavored to go ahead and darken the light of the Beis Hamikdash. And therefore, it was called darkness. That's why they're characterized as darkness. Because it was, they still had the light of the Beis Hamikdash, or Chachmei HaTorah, they also had the light which was being generated by Torah scholars, and Vehaim Ratzu Levatza. And the intention of the Greeks was to nullify that, was to bring that to an, uh, a halt, was to stop that. Okay. And therefore, this is something which he says is a very curious thing that we have this, uh, this era, which we, which is the Medrash describes as gallus, as exile. Yet we're in our place. We have the Beis Amitash, We have Chachamin. We seemingly have everything which we had before, just there were some decrees which they were trying to impose on us. So what does this mean? Now here he says, Malchus Yavon It should say l'achrif. It's uh, the, the Ration, the Ches are interposed. But it says, Malchus Yavon lo y'abedaitam l'achrif es Beis It was never the plan of the Greeks to destroy the Beis HaMiktosh. Ve'algam lo ratzul lakores haTorah mikol v'kol. And it was also never their intention to outlaw entirely the study of Torah. There was also not part of their plans. Ve'ad and the opposite is actually true. One of the contributions to world culture that the Greeks uh, contributed was the fact that they were the first ones to translate the Torah into 70 different language languages. So they actually wanted to promote the study of Torah. They were the first ones to come up with Google Translate. Back then it was called Greek Translate. But they came along and they translated the entire Torah to give access to everybody in the world to the Torah. And they had newsletters and they had conferences and they spent time and effort trying to demonstrate and publicize the beauty of the Torah. So they didn't want to destroy the base of mikdash, and they didn't want to snuff out Torah, destroy the Torah like in the, in the time of the Crusades that we talk about in above, and they had no intention of doing that whatsoever. And they translated the Torah to make it accessible to everybody in the world. So what were they trying to accomplish? What was their goal? What they were after is not the text and not the knowledge of Torah or the of what they were trying to snuff out, what they were trying to destroy, is the inner light which exists inside of Torah, the spiritual dimension of Torah. It wasn't the text of Torah, it wasn't a printed Torah, or even a Sefer Torah which they opposed, but it was the notion that there's something spiritual about that Chachma, about that wisdom. That's what they couldn't tolerate at all. Now he says Ki our favorite pastime is to go ahead and transliterate words. So he says, the Greeks wanted ha-culture shal'am Yisrael. That's hard to go ahead and transliterate shur into Hebrew letters, but he did the best he could. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to change the culture of the Jewish people. That's what they wanted. beis And it didn't bother the Greeks at all if the Jews retained their beis If you want a structure which you call a house of prayer, go ahead and you could keep a house of prayer. What do we care? And if you want to go ahead and you want to keep your own country and you want to say, this is a Jewish state, Zolzan, you could go ahead and you could keep a Jewish state. We don't care about that either. But what they could not tolerate and what they were trying to promote was that you should not retain your Jewish culture. We want you to now adopt Greek culture. And that is, we want the Jews to be no different than any other group of people who are living in the Greek empire. That you can keep your practices. If you want to eat the food you want to eat, go ahead. If you want to keep kosher, I don't care what you eat. It doesn't make a difference to me anyways. Yes, fish, no fish. Yes, sushi, not sushi. It doesn't make a difference what you want to go ahead. Chinese food on Christmas Eve, whatever, go, go crazy and make your, you know, whatever you would like to do. But the essential Jewish culture but la But what the Greeks would not tolerate is that the Jews would have a different way of doing things. Specifically, more elevated above the rest of the nations. They couldn't tolerate the Jews thinking that they are somehow better because they have access to spirituality. And they wanted, and here's the, the, the I'm going to highlight both of these now. He says, Hei mratzu l'kaimes israelis. He didn't mind if the Jewish people existed, but But they could not tolerate this, the notion that there's a sanctity to the Jewish people. Jewish culture, they didn't even mind so much. If you want to go ahead and you want to play klezmer music, Go crazy with the klezmer music if that's, what, uh, if that's what excites you. And if you want to have corned beef on rye, you can have corned beef on rye. That doesn't make a difference to us either. And yeah. if you want to have gefilte fish, so you could go ahead and you can have that too. That, uh, that doesn't matter. Bamba even. You could have, uh, have that. But to go ahead and to, to entertain sorry, sorry. the possibility that there's some sort of sanctity or holiness to the Jewish people, this is something that the, the Greeks found to be completely intolerable. And this is what they were trying to do. This is what they were attempting to undo or diffuse or to uh, to suck out the air out of that. This notion that the Jewish people are, are special. And he says, <laughs> he says the primary intent of the Greeks, he says, and this is very powerful, he says, was La Haya Lakor Their attempt was to go ahead and to do away uh, to uproot the notion that there is a fund, that there's a spiritual difference between the Jewish people and the rest of the nations of the world. Umasha Yisrael and they also cannot tolerate the fact that the Jews thought, or we we believe, that God. Has spe- pays special attention to the Jewish people more than he does the rest of the nations of the world. And that we have some sort of special divine providence above and beyond the rest of the nations, as that's what the Greeks found to be completely intolerable. They would not stand that at all. Now, and that even though the Greeks came along and they contributed to the promotion of Torah by translating into 70 language languages did that twice already? So it was with the same intention in mind and that was they weren't trying to promote Torah per se. they translated the Torah so that all the nations now have access of the, to the Torah. so that the Jews are no longer special because they study Torah. Because now in all the universities, in all of the colleges, they're all studying Torah now. In Taiwan, they study Torah. In Japan, they study Torah. All over the world, they're studying Torah. So it's no longer the unique domain of the Jewish people. And you Jewish people cannot claim something special and unique about yourselves because you study Torah. Because you know what? The whole world's studying Torah now. It's accessible in all 70 languages of the world. And you're no longer special because of that. Levat al-Hebda Yisrael amin They wanted to blur that line, that difference, between the Jewish people and the nations. And now every nation, every person, every student could go ahead and study Torah. And therefore the the Chazal tell us, l'chein Isa, that's why it's taught, that when the Greeks actually translated the Torah into the 70 languages, Amazing. Chazal say, Olam. The world was plunged into darkness. Spiritually, the world experienced three consecutive days of darkness as a result of that. Why? Because it wasn't their, their military might, which, which allowed them to rise to significance. It was the fact that they blurred the lines and they denied kedusha Israel, and they made Torah accessible to everybody. That is the beginning of the subjugation. That's the beginning of the exile of that's characterized as the Greek kingdom. and from that moment, once Torah is now accessible to everybody, so it was at this point that the Greeks began their campaign to successfully darken the eyes of the Jewish people from Torah. And he says, And the Maral says the same idea, that the reason why the Greeks wanted to translate the Torah, to translate to Greek was, because they felt that having access to Torah now gives us the ability to control the Jewish people. If they have some unique wisdom, they have a unique code, a unique knock on the door, uh, you know, a private thing that uh, by which they communicate with one another that we don't have access to, so then that, in a way, makes them special, and it's something which is going to be difficult for us to uh, to deny. But by going ahead and getting access to that, by forcing them to translate the Torah so that there's no area of study which they have, which we don't have as well, they're no longer special. And once we can establish that they're no longer special, so now they have no Kedusha. Because if we're all studying the same text, either we're all Kadosh or none of us are Kadosh. But you're not going to be able to differentiate anymore between the Jews and the Greeks. And that is, that was their primary intent. And everything which they did, the whole story was to blur that line and to deny Kedusha Israel, to deny that there's anything special and unique about the Jewish people. And then he says, also amazing, skipping around a bit, he says, Kishamu Yavanim, al and then when the Greeks came along like the Medrash said, and they told them that we want you to write on the horn of a bull you saw that you don't have a, that we the Jewish people you don't have a portion in the Jewish God what they wanted was the Jews to sort of affirm, to write by themselves this document of withdrawal, Meaning that the Jews now recognize we no longer have special, unique access to God. Once the Torah is now translated into all 70 languages, so the Jews don't have any more unique sprach, a unique language, a unique area of study, which would differentiate them from everybody else. That there's some sort of unique way by which God interacts with the Jewish people, different than he does with the nations of the world. And the idea that God is going to connect himself with the Jewish people more than he would connect himself with any of the other nations of the world. Uh, we say in, I think in the Yontif Dav, we say, There's some passage like that. That God's great name is called upon you. So it's like any other Haskama. somebody says, listen, we're doing a fundraiser, do you mind if I put your name down, because that will get other people to go ahead and donate. So sometimes people will say, yes, you could use my name. Some people say, no, I don't want to associate my name with that thing. So the fact that God associates his name with the Jewish people, that obviously shows that he has a, a, an intimate relationship with us, and he doesn't mind being associated with the Jewish people. And that's what the Greeks were trying to deny. They're trying to say, there is no special access. There's no protexia. You're, you're no better off than the rest of the the rest of the world. And now he says, Isa. now it's brought down, also fascinating, I think. Kimash amru why, why didn't the Greeks just say to the Jewish people, sign a document that says, we have no portion with the God of Israel. Why did it have to be written on the horn of a, a bull or a cow or a calf? So he says, What the Greeks were trying to do, where they were trying to emphasize, the uh, what they were trying to illustrate over here was, or they're trying to invoke the sin of the golden calf. Why did the Greeks feel that it was going to be important to invoke the sin of the golden calf? He says, The explanation is, That the when the Ramban talks about the sin of the golden calf, he says, what was going on is that they weren't actually worshipping the golden calf per se as a god, as a deity, but rather Shekla Yisrael bimamutsa. What Kla Yisrael wanted was they had a leader who was sort of the intermediary between themselves and God. That was Moshe Rabbeinu. Now that they were under the belief that Moshe Rabbeinu was no longer there, they said, we can't access God directly. We need an intermediary and we're going to choose this calf, this golden calf to be the intermediary. And he says, In this notion that the Jews would have an intermediary, this is the opposite. And that is the opposite. That means that, that where that would communicate, that would indicate that the Jews didn't believe that they had direct access to God. They thought that you cannot get direct access to God and you have to go through an intermediary. So the chay Egel represents this notion that we, the Jewish people, don't have direct access, and we have to go through an intermediary. And who does have to go through an intermediary? The rest of the nations of the world. So being that we made this sin, we sin with the golden calf, thinking that we need an intermediary, the Greeks reminded us of that, and they made us relive that experience we had PTSD as we're, as we're going through this. We had to relive that experience so that we would be reminded of the fact that at some point we went ahead and also thought we were no different than the rest of the nations. And having an intermediary is representative of that. And that is what they wanted to do was, Umisham Ratzu Hayyavanim and by invoking that, the Greeks wanted to then be able to point to, that, to the statement that we wrote on the horn of that bull, and they wanted to accuse us, to prosecute us, <laughs> to say that we don't believe that we actually have direct access to God. <laughs> so the Greeks could say, listen, you Jews yourselves Thought, recognized that you needed an intermediary to be able to access God, and you don't have direct access. You don't have a bat phone which goes directly to uh, to God and skips everything in between. And that's what that was the primary intent of what the Greeks were hoping to accomplish. Here he says again, their primary intent. This was their campaign was to go ahead and to to say that the Jews are just another culture, they're just another people, but there's nothing special about them, they have no special access to God, God doesn't pay any special attention to them, none of that stuff, it's a wisdom, it's a discipline which is studied, no kedusha, no light, no God, none of those things, that's what they were trying to do. And they were trying to uh, specifically uh, demonstrate and make this campaign denying that the Jews have any special access to God and, and that they get any special attention from God whatsoever. And this is what their intent was. And that's why they didn't mind if you Jews want to stay in the land of Israel as a state rather than as a religious thing. We don't mind if you stay here because this is where your families grew up and this is where your schools are. And this is where, you know, all of the cultural things that, that if you want to go ahead and do so you could go ahead and you could do all of those things, that doesn't bother us. Where you cross the line is if you think that you're special. If you at any point think that you're special and think that you're kadosh, that you have some sort of kadusha above the rest of us, so the Greek said that is completely unacceptable from our Greek perspective. And therefore that we have to go ahead and we have to squash and that we have to deny. And then he goes on to explain another idea, connects this idea further. And he says that there are, we know that there are four major sins, uh, uh, major alveiras. They are the big three. That's idolatry, murder, illicit relations. And then the fourth one is the, uh, islash and Hara. And he talks about not only are there four major sins, but he says those four sins correspond to the four exiles. So like we talked about at the beginning from the original psukim, that there's Tov, Avov, V'choshech, Hapnei som Burach, R'achefes. So they're just like there are four, uh, uh, four exiles. There's four sins which are characteristic of each of those exiles. And then he says, if you go ahead and you follow that. So he says, it's clear or it's explained, that the Greeks, they correspond to the sin, the, the, the severe uh, of murder. Now, that's a curious thing because of all of the nations which sought to annihilate the Jewish people, many of them were bloodthirsty killers. They actually wanted to annihilate the Jewish people in the sense that they, their, their intent was to actually kill. Think about it in terms of Haman. So in the time of Haman, the intent was, he didn't care a hoot about religion. All he wanted to do was he was a classic anti-Semit who just wanted Jews dead. So that we would imagine that's going to be associated with murder because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to murder the Jewish people. So why would we go ahead? Now, the Greeks, however, their intent was it wasn't that they weren't anti-Semites in the sense that they hated Jews and they wanted to kill Jews. They actually didn't want to kill anybody. They're a bunch of tree hugging, granola eating, uh, munching, uh, you know, uh, people like uh, my neighbors over here, not the always, but my other neighbors. They go ahead and they, uh, you know, that uh, Skokie loves everybody and everybody is going to be tolerated. So those are the people that they're not murderers at all. You don't associate them with murder. They have a lot of other things which, they, uh, which are wrong, but murder is not one of the things that we, that we associate with them. So, why is it that based on this approach, we're, uh, we're, we're connecting murder with the Greeks? They would be the one least likely uh, to be murderers. Ulafi <inaudible> Pasha so says, according to simple explanation, <inaudible> it's not really clear what the association the connection is between the Greeks and murder and the spilling of blood hello yavan who culture the yofi greek is all about culture it's all about beauty physical beauty intellectual beauty <laughs> And even in world history, they look at the Greek Empire and what they contributed to the world. It's a it's an empire where they contributed a tremendous amount intellectually and the arts and all of those things. They they uh, we, we, there are many things which we have nowadays which are carryovers from the contribution of the Greeks to the world in their culture. <inaudible> And what does this have to do with murder at all? That's not really what they were known for. Now, it's true, they conquered the world, but that's not what they were known for. They did so in order to spread their culture. <laughs> they were just trying to promote their wisdom, the Yofi, in the idea, Yofi and they created the Olympics and the, uh, what did they just have, the, uh, the soccer, or whatever. The World Cup and all of those things which are going on. So that was all part of their their uh, their, their belief that the, the body is beautiful and the mind is beautiful and art is beautiful and everything is just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. That's not what you normally associate with uh, with murders. So So why are we, why are Chazal seeing that the specific exile, which is associated with murder, is the one least likely to be murders? So now he says, amazing. He says, now if you think about it, if you spend some time thinking about it, and I'm not going to give you time to think about it. So he says, Nira, Yeshkan Havana Amuka. So Rav Shore says there's actually a very deep idea over here why chazal connect Greeks and murder. And that is davar and the principle behind this, the foundation of this idea, of this connection, is found in the maral. And he says, Because when we use the term for murder, which is literally translates as pouring of blood. So spilling blood is when a person's blood spills out of the body. So that means the life force. So the life force which exists inside of a person, a murderer spills that blood, meaning that the life in the chiyus is something which is is gone, is drained from the uh, from the body. As we said, because blood is the living soul of a person. And if you separate from that body, so now the body doesn't have the fuel or doesn't have the uh, the energy to be able to survive. And therefore, by spilling blood. You sap out, you draw out, and you drain all of the life force from the body. And that's why You're spilling the blood, meaning draining it of its life force, like we talk about draining your uh, your uh, uh, your uh, your cell phone battery. So it drains out, and if all that energy drains out, so then you're left without a functioning. You're left with just a a, a, a thing, but it doesn't it doesn't work. Okay. He says this idea that murder is the sapping uh, of the life out of something. So, So conceptually, anytime you draw the energy out of something or you draw the life force out of something, so in the conceptual realm, not physical realm, but in the conceptual realm, so we can use the metaphor of murder. Because you're taking the life force out of something. Now let's apply this to the Greeks. So what were the Greeks trying to do? They were trying to accomplish this exact same thing in terms of drawing the life force out of something. As we explain, Because what was their intent? What were they trying to accomplish? What they were trying to do is they were trying to say that you Jewish people, you have a beautiful culture, a beautiful language, a beautiful Bible, a beautiful, all sorts of different things. And all of that superficial stuff is beautiful and it should be maintained. You should continue to eat falafel and you continue to eat bamba and you continue to do all of those things which you uh, which you do so well. All of the externals. And you can even keep your Torah and we're going to help you with it because we're going to translate 70 languages. What? I have a question. Is yeah. it possible that maybe the, they were doing this because they were, do, it feels like it's a repeat of the world now, which is like Black Lives Matter and gay people matter and we're all the same people and nobody should discriminate against each other. Is it possible? It sounds first of all like it's repeating life, like, you know, yeah, yeah. repeating history. Secondly, do, do you think maybe that's what they were trying to do? That's what who is trying to do the Greeks, or or nowadays? Yeah. Which one? Greeks. The Greeks. That's that's what the they're trying to do. That's what they were trying, they're trying to, to do. They are trying to make everybody united as one. They weren't everybody trying to be bad or evil, because that's what we're that's what people are doing these days. It's kind of like a repeat. Yes. Yes. But oh. yes. very much. Interesting. Uh and they didn't mind if the Jews wanted to keep a which is a beautiful structure that didn't bother them either because why not, as long as there's no kedusha in it who cares but what they were trying to do was and this is the key what they were trying to deny and what they were trying to drain was the, the notion and the claim by the Jews that the Torah has kedusha to it and the Beis Hamitosh has Kedusha to it. And the Jewish people are a Kaddosh people. They're they're uh, 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 anshe that they're a holy nation. That idea that we have Kedusha, that there's an inner life force, there's a spiritual life force inside of all of those things, that's what the Greeks were trying to deny. And that is conceptually Shafi Damin, because it's draining the life force out of it. The Torah doesn't really exist without the spirituality of it. A Beis hamikdash doesn't really exist as a structure. It only has value in terms of the Kedusha of the Beis hamikdash. And if you're going to deny the sanctity of a Beis hamikdash, if you're going to deny the sanctity of the Jewish people, you're going to deny the sanctity of Torah, so you've drained it of all of its life force. And that is essentially, that is conceptually murder. And that is exactly what Shpichus Damin is. So although they didn't actually... Go. They didn't have a campaign to kill Jews. Their campaign to deny sanctity is shvichas damim in the sense that it it takes the life force, it takes the spiritual life out of these sacred things and tries to deny it entirely. And that is ultimately what the uh, what what the Greeks were trying to accomplish. And then he says again, it's always uh, it's always um, encouraging when in the course of developing a mahalach, a different approach to uh, to an idea, when you could see it manifest itself in many different contexts. So here we talked about the different exiles. We talked about the psucheon at the beginning of Bracius. We talked about the four Averas. We talked about all of those different things and how they all correspond and how we could understand what the Greeks were trying to accomplish through these different facets, facets of all of these, these different ideas. And then he goes at, and G'day sure, he takes it a step further. And he says that the three big Averas, putting and Hara aside, that will go with Yosef, but the other three Averas of, again, idolatry, murder, and illicit relations, so they correspond to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. How exactly, which one each of them corresponds to, so that's beyond what we have the time for right now. But he says over here, he says, the Yaakov who midas ha'emes, so Yaakov is, that's the trait, he personifies truth, and he is the counterweight to murder. So he is the one who, sort of on one side of the scale is murder, on the other side of the scale is Yaakov Avinu. So now the question is, what's the parallel between Yaakov Avinu, who's MS, and murder on the other side, and why are they uh, uh, counterweights to one another? So he says, so, Yaakov Avinu, he's actually the source of spiritual life, like we say, Kamosha Amru, Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Like say, Yaakov Avinu never died. And it's something which is, you have to work out what exactly I mean by that. The Pesukim say he was embalmed and he was buried and all that. But conceptually, Yaakov Avinu doesn't die. Why? Because death, by definition, is being cut off. Uh, let's say, the body from the uh, the soul, or somehow the soul is no longer connected. And Yaakov was so deeply connected that even in his death, he never becomes disconnected from God. Again, whatever that means, not as opposed to uh, others. But Yaakov represents this chiyos, this life, more so than anybody else. And he says, kihu. this is very maral like but he says, kihu uh, Ki because Yaakov Avinu he was the one who blends together chomer, which is substance, like a clump of clay, latsura, and gives that clump shape. Maral talks very often about chomer and sura. You have substance, and then the substance is made into something, into a particular shape. And if you do that successfully, so then what you actually have is the physical thing now becomes defined by its shape rather than by anything else. Uh, a tree is chomer. It's just a bunch of wood. It's nothing. But you go ahead and you shape it and you attach the pieces together. Now you have a chair, you have a table, you have a stander. You can have all sorts of things that you build out of that. That's going to be the tzura. That's the shape which you give to the chomer, to the raw substance of the wood itself. And as far as in terms of human endeavor, viniskasha legamre, hatsir hachitzoni, imatsir hapnimi. And what Yaakov represents is the perfect blend between his outer self and his inner self. There was no gap. There was no difference. There was nothing which was missing in terms of that blend together. Everything matched up absolutely perfectly. Okay, that we don't need to see. And he says, And therefore, since everything was used beautifully, so therefore, hu haya hahevech damin v'chol and therefore, Yaakov Avinu represents the opposite of any spill blood or anything related to that. Because remember, spill blood represents a lack of chios, a lack of spiritual life, which is there. And Yaakov Vinu, who blended everything together, he took the extreme of his grandfather of Rum, which was Chesed, and he took the other extreme of his father, with his Yisog, which was Din. And the MS, the truth is, knowing exactly when to use each of those two traits and balancing them together seamlessly so you can't even tell that they, that they emanate from two different sources because they blended so well together. So therefore, he is the one who infuses life into everything. Infusing life is the opposite of murder. Murder is the taking out of life from something, whether physical life or whether spiritual life, spirituality. So Yaakov Inu is the one who perfectly blends all that together. And who be'emes, social, social Midas, And that's why Yaakov Avinu represents, he's the one who personifies truth. Truth in what sense? She'yakov, uh, he says, MS, because what exactly is the definition of truth? nikra, because the term MS matches with the word matin. Matin means it, it it fits together. These things are, these things go together, they blend together. So MS is when you take the outer manifestation of something in the inner manifestation of something, and everything works perfectly together. Right? I'm sure many of you have had that uh, experience where you went ahead and you had to take something apart to repair it, and then you put it back together, and you're left with some extra screws on the side. Say, so, well, they probably weren't so important, anyways. Well, they probably were important because somebody put them there. Somebody designed them for them to be there at some point. And they didn't put extra screws and and washers in there just for fun, just because they had some extra lying around in the factory. So I might as well just throw those in. So they probably were important at some point. You just may not appreciate that, but uh, uh, seeing how every cell and every part of the thing is necessary and contributes, that is the ultimate in MS because everything is pure and everything is true and everything is clear. And when you have some sort of discrepancy or some sort of gap between your outer life and your inner life, that already is, can be characterized as shaker, because something isn't fitting. And when something isn't fitting, so then that's like we say that shaker, the, the structure of the letters, ain't lower glime, it doesn't have any legs to stand on because it, it's, it's, it's going to falter, it cannot, it cannot survive. So Yaakov Avinu is the one who represents, he's the counterbalance of Shemitah's Damin, and that's why he represents MS. MS is also associated with Torah, and that's why the study of Torah is such a dominant theme in Hanukkah thought, because the kedushah of Torah, the study of Torah and the recognition that it has sanctity, so that is the victory, ultimately that's the victory that we had over the Greeks. The military victory ultimately, at the end of the day, ends up being this minor element of the story. It was major at the time. It was a huge thing for the Jews to have defeated the mighty Greek Empire but in terms of duration, in terms of what remnants we have of that, so we don't have much to show for the fact that we defeated them militarily. We don't even have a Beis Amitosh anymore at this point, but we do have is the fact that we were able to successfully defend the Jewish culture, Jewish culture meaning true culture, of sanctity of Torah, sanctity of Beis Amitosh, sanctity of the Jewish people, sanctity of all of those things. And therefore he says, that, and with this, we'll, uh, this last part we'll conclude, he says and the Greeks, Greek culture, what they were trying to promote is actually the opposite of MS, is the opposite of this truth, which we're saying is representative, is personified by Yaakov Avinu, and if you think about it, everything about the Greeks, what they were trying to promote, is everything is superficial, you should look beautiful and that the mind should present beautifully. And they had no concern at all about the handicapped, about the needy, about the people who couldn't perform. If you weren't intellectually advanced, if you weren't physically advanced, they had no use for you. And they, uh, like one of the, uh, the rabbis in town talks about every year, he says that there was no such thing in Greek culture. They could not imagine a Special Olympics. Because Special Olympics are, are for people who aren't perfect. And why would you ever celebrate somebody's imperfection? Their whole pursuit was perfection, perfection of the mind, perfection of of the body, but all on a superficial level. It wasn't on an inner spiritual level that they denied entirely. So he says they represented the ultimate in something which is chizonious, something which is superficial. And he says, And that's why the, the term for yavan, which we have for Greeks, is related to the word ona. Ona, if you remember, is, in certain contexts, is where I deceive you by, I, I, I paint over my car to make it seem as if it's a new car, and it hides all of the rust. So I put something superficially on the outside so that you cannot see what actually exists on the inside of the thing, and you become deceived by that. So that's a special listener called Ona. And that is what the Greeks personified this desire to go ahead and look at things only in the most superficial view whatsoever. And that is shuhum midas hasheker. And therefore, they represent not only murder, but they represent they personify sheker, sheker in the sense of not recognizing that there's two things which have to sh'tim, because they only see things superficially. They don't appreciate any inner kedusha which is there. And that is the exact opposite of what Ms is. And that's why the victory of the Jews over the Greeks, in terms of the what we take with it for generations, or we continue to celebrate to this day, which we actually have something to be able to show for it, is our connection to Torah, the belief that the Jewish people are special, that have a special relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that there's special Hashgacha, special divine providence, which is assigned to the, to the Jewish people. And it's the spiritual dimension of it, which is the main victory and the main celebration Rather than the Geborim or the Rabbim miyatim, that was all just a, a technical thing which had to be done uh, for the military victory, but it was the spiritual victory which is much more important and much more long lasting than the military victory. All righty. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. So have a Hanukkah Sameh of Hanukkah, all of those uh, things. Enjoy a. Uh, Thank you an external looking donut or something <laughs> which uh, which people go ahead and they uh, they do and uh...